As a parent, there is so much that I desire for my girls and for my family. I have earnestly prayed for their future and for their well-being. As weird as it may sound, I pray for my girls and their future spouses. I pray specifically for their salvation. Pray for us, we have a four-year-old. I pray that they have a vibrant and vivacious relationship with Jesus. I pray that the orientation of their lives will attract people to Jesus and to the kingdom of God. There are many nights where I dream of all that God could do through Addie and through Lily. I dream that I'll escape the teen years easily, that wedding costs will go down, and that our girls will be penny pinchers. A lot of you are sitting there shaking your heads. Wishful thinking, David, wishful thinking. While I confess to you that these prayers and while I confess to you these dreams and these prayers of mine, I must also confess to you that there are many nights of restlessness and even nightmares. Restlessness, because I know my own depravity and my own fallenness. And even in their young age, I see those same tendencies in my girls. I have nightmares of my girls refusing to follow the way of Christ and the way of the cross. This is a great fear and a great uneasiness in my heart and my mind. I am sincerely concerned over the eternal destiny of my girls. And I know that as I stand behind this pulpit this morning, I'm not the only one. I know that there are many of you who are currently raising your children and in the trenches alongside Lee and I in this endeavor to disciple our kiddos. But then I see those of you with a grin who are war-torn and battle-tried, who have already gone through the trenches of raising your children, and now you get a front row seat to seeing your children struggle through the trenches of raising their kiddos. Every parent has dreams and aspirations of what they desire for their children, and every parent also has had nightmares and fears of what could take place in the lives of their children. In this parable, in the parable that we have just read, the father's worst fear, and his greatest nightmare of his life has become a reality. The day came when his child would make a choice for himself. This decision was life-altering, and it was a family-shattering decision. This decision would affect the way his family would view him undoubtedly for a long time. This decision was a significant financial blow, but it was also an absolute uppercut to the chin of the patriarch. Look in verse 2. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. So there are two sons, and the youngest of the son approaches his father and asks for the portion of the family's belongings. It's important for us to note that in a family with two brothers, 
um, the, that the, sons, uh, the oldest son would have received the, the primary inheritance, but all of the father's belongings would have been divided into thirds. A third of the belongings would have gone to the oldest son, a part of his inheritance, a part would have gone to the widow, and then the final third would have gone to the youngest son. This decision and request is way out of line and is incredibly shameful. To request the portion of goods that belongs to you while your father is alive was more than a smack to the face. It was incredulously backwards and against the ways of a family in the current context Jesus is speaking to. The son wants out. He doesn't want to be a part of the family. He doesn't want to work on the family farm. He doesn't want to continue following the requests of his father. What he basically is asking his father to do, he is asking his father to inventory everything that he owns. And then the father is to allocate to his son all that belongs to him. The younger son takes his possessions and cashes out and goes all in on the way that he wishes to live. Days after he receives the father's gift, which I cannot imagine how awkward those days at the supper table must have been when the, when the son asked for his inheritance from the father. Days after, he leaves the father's house only to find satisfaction for a short season. The son was foolish to request his inheritance. And he was foolish in his decision to leave the father's house. But he was most definitely foolish in how he managed his resources and his life. Look with me in verse 13. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and then wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. The son received everything that was afforded to him by the father. He loaded it into a small U-Haul truck and moved to wherever the wind took him. The characterization of the way he lived was as reckless as his decision to leave was. Luke states that he wasted his possessions with prodigal living, which means that he was wasteful in wasteful living. The son led a lavish lifestyle in which he had no business living. He was sitting at a five-star restaurant when he needed to be at Taco Bell. The riches that the younger son accumulated so quickly went to the head of the son and he could not manage his assets or possessions. One loss became two losses. And at the turn of every month, the weight of living on your own became increasingly heavy and the burden of expenses became too great. Not only did his lifestyle not match his income, he experienced a big mis misfortune in that there was a national epidemic. A famine has hit the land, and as dry and as destitute as the land was, so was his bank account. Luke describes it as, he began to want. He began to want. In other words, the son came to a place that he was desperate 
for anything to eat and for anyone to help. Please help me. Will you please come to my aid? Now this son, he finds a citizen of this far country who just so happens to be a pig farmer. The the farmer hires this son with his wages being a place to stay and his food being the very thing that he must feed his livestock with. The son is now living amongst the pigs and eating with the pigs. There is no one who gives him anything except for the farmer who graciously allows him to work for him. Now, this may be a good time for us to step out of the story and remember the context of this passage. Jesus is telling this story, this parable, this series, this trio of parables to the religious elite. He's talking to the tax collectors, to the scribes, and to the Pharisees. And what these religious elite are doing is they're complaining to Jesus for hanging out with sinners. What an odd complaint. So for these religious people, they would have understood that this younger son who ventured off on a great adventure, he ventured to a foreign land that more than likely would have been Gentile. The Pharisees would have detested that the son would have lowered himself to such a place to associate with a citizen of a far country and even much more so, associate with a person who would raise unclean animals. I'm sure that the Pharisees can see where this story is heading, but I'm not sure that they're prepared for the twists and the turns that Jesus gives to us in this parable. The Son. Here's the good part. The change in the plot While drenched in the muck of a pig pen, he comes to himself. This lost son, who has nothing to his name, has no place to live and no food to eat, aside for what is portioned for the pigs, he remembers the grace of his father. The son remembers the way in which his father even treated his servant says this in verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? How could this father's servant, how could his father's servants not only have enough to eat, but also have leftovers to eat whenever they want it? The moment that the Son comes to Himself is something that we should ponder. Something that we should meditate on. This phrase, we often use to describe someone who is passed out or knocked out cold. We think He has come back to His senses. He's awake. I love how Sproul describes this phrase. The Son comes to Himself but not by himself. The Son comes to himself, but not by himself. It is the move of the Spirit in our lives that allows us to realize our mistakes and our failures. In this instance, the Spirit reminds the Son of the grace of his Father. It's in this moment 
the recollection of the kindness and grace of his Father that he realizes and decides what he must do. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my Father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your Son. Make me like one of your hired servants. The Son, the end of himself, he realizes that his plan, his decision, his request to leave his choices while away were all terrible mistakes. More importantly, he not only recognizes his mistakes, but he is willing to repent of his sins. The script that he has planned out to tell his father is one of utter humility and confession. He first admits his actions were sin firstly against God, then secondly against his father. He accepts that what he has done has grieved the heart of God, but also destroyed the heart of his very earthly father. The son realizes that his sin has consequences. And that those consequences could very well be harsh. It could very well mean that his family won't even accept him back. In the very words that he has planned to say to his father, there is much doubt that he won't take him back. Because the the son in his earnest confession is willing to even become one of his father's servants. He's just begging for bread. He's begging for the morsels that the father gives to his servants. He knows he doesn't deserve to be treated any better. As Jesus continues this story, we get to see the graciousness of the Father. A graciousness that existed even when he was wronged by his own son, and now would be extended as his son would return home. We don't have much background about the Father, but what we do know about the Father is given to us by how he responds to his son. Verse 20 says this, And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. The son takes the long journey home. From a far country, to beg for forgiveness and a place as a servant in his father's house. I can only imagine the long walk home from a foreign land. The son who is covered in the stench and filth of a pig stall walks all the way home envisioning the comfort and safety of where he grew up. He longs for the familiarity and the love that just comes with being home. The shame and guilt of his past decisions undoubtedly walked with him step for step. The son carried his shame, his guilt, his remorse, and nothing else on his shoulders. He had pawned off all that the father had given to him, and yet the journey home was heavier 
than the, the journey away. The son's journey home, his walk back to his father's house, was heavier than when he walked away with all that was afforded to the son. The important part that I think all of us should note is that the son did more than realize that he needed to change. He moved. He moved. His understanding of his need to repent led him to actually repenting. The son coming to himself was more than just a mere realization and acknowledgement. It took the form of taking steps toward the Father. Spurgeon says this, If you come a little way to Him, when you are yet a great way off, He will run to meet you. I do not know that the prodigal saw his father, but his father saw him. The eyes of his mercy are quicker than the eyes of repentance. Even the eyes of our faith is dim compared with the eye of God's love. He sees a sinner long before a sinner sees him. Praise God. He had come to the end of himself. And as the son nears arriving home, the father recognizes a figure that he was incredibly familiar with, even at a great distance. And the father immediately runs to meet his son. I can envision it now with my holy imagination, as my ninth grade Bible teacher used to say in our classes. The father, in all his grace, running to the son. The son humbly crumbling into the arms of his father and his father embracing him and essentially tackling his son to the ground as he falls on his neck and kisses his son, his long lost son. And as they embrace, the son pushes away and the son says to his father, Daddy, I have sinned. I have sinned against you, but more seriously, I have sinned against God. I am not worthy to be your son. And just as the son utters those words, the father chimes in, interrupts what the son is saying almost mid-confession. And he begins to bark out loud commands to his servants. Bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. This father's response is beautiful. His running to his son, his hugging and kissing his son. All of that. It's such a beautiful picture of the grace of God in our lives. The servants are prompted to bring out a robe and cover the muck and grime that the son carried. Praise God. Not only is he given a robe, but also a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. There is so much beauty in the gifts that the father gives to his son. But what the father says what the Father declares was life 
giving for His Son. For this my Son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The robe, the ring, the shoes paled in comparison to those words, those words of grace and love and kindness falling upon the ears of the prodigal son. The shame and guilt that he carried was all pushed aside as the forgiveness of the father overwhelms the son. The robe covered his raggedy clothes. The shoes, the sandals met his felt basic need. Undoubtedly, his shoes were torn and tattered from the long journey home. And the ring signified that, son, you will be more than a hired servant in my house. You are my son. Praise God. Then the celebration begins. Here's the part that I believe infuriated the Pharisees and the scribes. This, because this was the very thing that they could not accept about Jesus. Jesus in all of heaven celebrates the lost coming home. The sinner coming to the Father. The three, par- the three parables that are in uh, Luke chapter 15 that we have had the chance to read this morning as a congregation Uh, They line and they show for us the very purpose and mission of Jesus and the heart of God for His people. So as Jesus in this parable begins to set the stage for the grand feast, that the Father is having to rejoice over the return of His Son, Jesus introduces us to another prodigal. One who who doesn't venture far from home, He doesn't necessarily do anything glaringly wrong. But his heart is cold and bitter and angry and he sure doesn't have the heart of his father. He never wastes his possessions, but internally the elder brother, the older brother was a wreck. As the celebration takes place, the eldest son has chosen to stand afar off. The father has restored the prodigal son that deserved to be punished rather than restored. He sure doesn't deserve to be celebrated. Wouldn't celebrating the life of the prodigal and the son coming home be condoning his life, condoning the the sins that he committed? The older son, though he is never called the prodigal son in the text sure acts as lost and wasteful as his younger counterpart. The older son takes refuge in his proximity rather than his relationship with the father. He clearly cannot accept the forgiveness that the father extends to his brother and refuses to enter the celebration ceremonies. A servant saw the older brother, noticed that he wasn't joining, noticed that there was an empty seat at the table. And he sees the older brother outside and goes and asks him what's going on. The servant returns into the home and gives a report to the father. 
And then the father comes to the oldest son. And he says this in verse 28, if you're following along. But he, the older son, was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me even a a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. What a difference of approach between the younger son and the oldest son. The oldest son is upset that his history of obedience is not celebrated and recognized. But the actions of his misfit reject brother is now celebrated. The older son is outraged and beside himself. The father assures the older son of what the oldest son actually truly cares about the most. And that his inheritance is not affected and that nothing is changed about his status. And the father, he bluntly exhorts his son that it was the right thing to be glad that his son has been restored and has returned. The father is clearly disappointed at the rogue anger and disposition of his oldest son. Tim Keller adds this, the elder brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. It's not his sins that create the barrier between him and his father. It's the pride he has in his moral record. It's not his wrongdoing, but his righteousness that is keeping him from sharing in the feast of the father. If we are not careful, we can make this parable about moralism and self-realizations than what it is truly about. Then on the other spectrum, in light of what we have spoken about with the elder brother, we can easily take refuge in our robotic religiosity. The call of this parable is for all. The religious elite and the wayward sinner to take part in the way of Christ, to accept the gospel, that we are not good enough on our own and that we are utterly, utterly hopeless without the loving embrace of the Father. But not just His embrace, His forgiveness in our lives. Though we are not good enough, nor have we done enough good, He still loves us and invites us to celebrate with Him and take part in His mission of bringing hope to the hopeless and restoring the brokenhearted and saving sinners. Today, Jesus is calling us to search our hearts and see if we are prodigals. Are we the ones who struggles with Jesus pursuing sinners? Have we lost sight of the grace of God? Have we lost touch with the very heart of God? 
Are we pursuing sinners as Jesus pursued sinners and spent time with them? Are we celebrating the grace of God moving in the lives of sinners through the work of His Spirit and through the completed work of Jesus on the cross? I've struggled with sharing this next portion, but I find it so incredibly fitting that this week there has been a revival taking place at Asbury. And not just Asbury College but across many college campuses. The reaction of social media by the world is intriguing, but the reaction of many Christians is also appalling to me. I want to be careful, but we have grown in our cynicism, and we have reveled in our revivalist nostalgia of the past. And that is hindering many Christians from rejoicing with those who have received grace. I rejoice in what is taking place. Now is it my place to test that? I'm unsure. But by no means am I advocating for us to swallow every report, hook, line, and sinker that's in the, me- in the news or in the media, but my word, have we grown so critical that we might possibly even miss revival for ourselves. Have we become the Pharisees and scribes and tax collectors that Jesus is going after in this passage? Can we not celebrate the grace of God moving across college campuses in America? I'm thankful. I'm so thankful that these young men and women are pursuing Christ. Will we just sit back and critique them? Will we miss revival? Will we miss the grace of God? Today, my prayer is that we have accomplished much more than rehash and recall a familiar parable. There are several dozen men in this church who could have walked us through this passage just as clearly and vividly as as we've been able to do this morning. My prayer and the application of this sermon is to three distinct groups. To the prodigals. To the prodigals. Come home. Come home. To the loving embrace of the Father. Realize that the way in which you are living is contrary to the way in which the Father longs for you to live. Repent of your sin. Spurgeon speaking about the road home says this, slow are the steps of repentance, but swift are the feet of forgiveness. God can run where we scarcely limp, and if we are limping towards Him, He will run toward us. If you are living a life that only pleases yourself, and you are wasting the very blessings that God has afforded to you, I beg you to turn away and limp towards the Father. And here's the sure promise of the Gospel of Jesus, that He will run toward you, and He will be swift to hug you and kiss you 
and restore you as one of his own sons. To the parents. To parents. To the ones waiting on the porch for your sons and daughters to come home. I have very candidly spoken with you about my fear of my family. Today, I realize that there are many of you who are sitting back, waiting on the porch for your son or daughter to come home. And to you, I cast no shame, no guilt, no rod of correction. And I promise I will pray for your wayward son or wayward daughter. And if you would love for me to pray for your son or daughter, I would be glad to meet you up front after the service. But here's what I want to pray. Here's what I hope we will all pray together. God, supply us with the grace to forgive and the heart to love like you loved us. God, supply us with the grace to forgive and the heart to love like you loved us. But then to the older sons, to the ones who are close, but yet so far away, to the outward conformist, the Father sees your angry spirit, your restless mind, and your unforgiven heart. And he is inviting you to join the celebration feast and to experience him. To the ones who struggle to celebrate the spiritual victories and the grace in others' lives, the Father welcomes you into his presence. He invites you to partake in the grace of God with him. So will you be like the Pharisees who have a deep disdain for Jesus' choice to love sinners? Or will you repent of your self-righteousness and confess your need for a Savior? The Savior invites the prodigals to enter into this celebration. He has killed a fatted calf, and he clothes all of those who repent with the robes of his righteousness. And he meets the felt needs of his son. My goodness, he provides for the sparrows. Will he not even so love us much more? But then, he slides a ring on his son's hands. And he declares you a son, a joint heir of the Father. One who will still receive an inheritance, though you have lived a wasteful lifestyle, though you have wronged the Father, even while you were sinning against Him, even while you were spitting in His face, He died for you. And yet, He runs after us. He runs. 
Will you come to yourself? But will you do more than realize that you need to repent? Will you repent? Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.